please come with me uh, tonight to Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah 22. And we're going to read from verse uh, 20. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt, and I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay upon his shoulder. So he shall open and no man and no one shall shut and he shall shut and no one will open. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. Last Sunday morning, uh, whenever we were reading from Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 regarding Christ, I very, very briefly just happened to mention uh, Eliakim. And uh, the context, of course, Isaiah 9 and 6, it's a prophecy concerning Christ. And part of that, that he would be uh, the ruler in Israel. And I want tonight, just for a few moments, to kind of flesh this idea out a little bit and to show you Eliakim as a type of Christ. I briefly mentioned that, but I just want to flesh it out a little bit more tonight. But before I do that, let me just give you a little bit of the context, the background. Uh, And that is this, that Jerusalem was about to fall. Southern Kingdom Judah uh, was going to go into captivity. Uh, The Assyrians would kill many and they would take many more as captives. And Shebna, who was King Hezekiah's chamberlain and treasurer, he was the head of his household, Uh, he had proudly boasted of his wealth. In fact, he was so proud about it that he built himself out of the king's money a great and big tomb where he would be buried at the end of his days. And Isaiah prophesies to him and tells him that's not going to happen. In fact, you're going to be taken captive to a foreign land and there you will die and you will never return. And so, in this dark night of Judah's history, a bright new star was about to appear. His name was Eliakim. Eliakim was a good and he was a godly man. And he was going to take the place of Shebna as the king's chamberlain. Verse 21, it says that he would become as a father to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Verse 23, he would be strong and secure. That he would become a glorious throne to his father's house. Eliakim would be exalted by God in the midst of all the people. Now remember I told you that Eliakim, uh, how that those who were the keeper of the king's household, who looked after the palace, that they would wear the key of the palace, the key of the gate of even the city, they would wear it on their shoulder because they were big gates, therefore they required big keys. And as a sign that the king had put everything into his hand, then he would proudly wear this key. 
And of course, Shebna wore that for a long time, but it was being removed from him, and now Eliakim was going to take the key upon his shoulder. Remember we said in Isaiah 9 and 6 regarding the prophecy of Christ that the government shall be upon his shoulder. And, uh, and so that's what I want you to see, Eliakim, as a type of Christ. In fact, in Revelation 3, Christ quotes from this very passage that we have just read. Revelation 3, verse 7 and 8, listen to what it says. And the angel of the church of Phil- to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See how I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Eliakim would both be literally and figuratively, he would hold the key to the house of David. It would be upon his shoulder. Eliakim would be a type of Christ. Christ is the one who holds the key or the keys to our lives that will govern our lives, that he will be the ruler over our lives. And he has the key and the keys of our lives. They're upon his shoulder. The keys of our very existence is on the shoulders of Christ tonight. He also holds the key of David. In other words, God is not finished with Israel. His very son holds the key of David upon his shoulder. Now we know that keys open many doors, do they not? A filing cabinet where records are kept, a safe where valuables are stored, a prison, your house, your car. Keys open and close doors. And the first key I want to mention tonight, just a few of them, but the first key I want to mention tonight that Christ holds, <coughs> excuse me, is the key of salvation. The key of salvation. In John 14, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Because he's the only one who holds the key. The Apostle Paul, speaking to Timothy, said there is neither salvation in any other. Or Peter speaking, saying there's neither salvation in any other. No other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. Because Christ himself holds the key. Paul writing to Timothy says there is one mediator between God and man. And that is the man, Christ Jesus. And there's other verses to show us that Christ indeed is the only way. Ephesians 1 and 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And so Christ holds the key to our salvation. Let me just expound that a little bit more. Come with me to Romans chapter 5. Let me just read a couple of verses here in Romans. Beginning in chapter 5. (coughs) 
Well, let's read from verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And then if you just go back uh, to chapter, chapter 4 and read verse 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those who are Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And then just one more verse, uh, chapter 3 of Romans, just back a little bit, verse uh, 26. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, the Apostle Paul uses terms here that theologians like to play with. Terms like justification and imputation. Justifying and imputing. So what does that mean to us? What is Paul trying to get at when it comes to our salvation? Well, let me put it to you this way. <coughs> Suppose you were... <coughs> brought up before a court of law and you were accused of several crimes and uh, you give a defense for yourself. The judge listened to the crimes that you were accused of. He listened to your defense and the judge and the jury at the end of it decided that actually you are innocent of all of those crimes of which you have been accused. Actually, you're a just person. And so they declare you just, a just person, and you go free. But say we stand before God's court, and the evil one comes and accuses us. All kinds of accusations. And sadly, in this case, they're all true. Because the reality is, we have all broken God's laws. We've all fallen short of his standards. So actually, we're guilty. But how then can God justify the unjust? Because we're the unjust. So how can he justify the unjust? How can he be the justifier of the unjust? That doesn't seem like justice, does it? Now we can play and we see people standing in court and we know they're guilty. They know they're guilty. Everybody knows they're guilty. But through some technicality, they get off and it just seems so unfair. It seems so unjust, doesn't it? But how can God, knowing that we are guilty, knowing that we are unjust, how can he justify us? 
Well, a couple of things has to happen. And of course, this is where Christ comes in. This is where the gospel comes in. Because now a penalty has got to be paid because we are guilty before God. And we can't pay the penalty. So God sent His Son to die in our place because the wages of sin is what? It's death. Eternal separation from God. So God sends His Son. And here's what happens. On the cross, He takes all of our sin, all of our guiltiness, all of our law-breaking, that is taken from us and it is, and this is where Paul switches tact. Now he leaves the courtroom and he goes into the accountant's office. He takes all of that, all of that guilt, all of that law-breaking, he takes that of us and he imputes it onto Christ. He reckons it as Christ's debt. It is our debt. We couldn't pay it. But God takes it off us, puts it onto Christ, and reckons it his debt. Now, he's going to have to pay for it, for our sins, for our law-breaking. It's imputed onto him now. And so he pays for it through his death on the cross, and we're forgiven. We're cleared. We're pardoned. We're exonerated of all sin. That's wonderful on its own, isn't it? But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. God's not just content to take all of our sin and impute it onto Christ and put all of our debt onto Him and make Him pay for it. That just leaves us that we have no debt. If you owed, let me put it this way, if you owed 50,000 pounds and you had no money and you're in serious trouble and say, I come and I'm a multi-millionaire and I come and I say, you know what? I'll pay that debt for you. I'll take your debt and I'll put it into my account and I'll be responsible for your debt and I'll pay that 50 grand and that means you're clear. You have no debt. That would be good, wouldn't it? But what would be even better is, after I had done that, if I said to you, well, that's that debt cleared, but now here's what I want to do for you. I want to give you a million pounds. I want to impute, I want to rack in some of my money into your account, so I'm going to give you a million pounds, now you can go out and live. You have no debt, but now you can go out and live. And this is what Christ has done for us. He has taken all of our debt of our sins. He's taken all of that into his account, his debt. He's paid for it, paid in full. When Jesus said, it is finished, it was one word, tetelestai, which is paid in full. But then he says, wait a minute, I want to give you more. Now, I want to give you my righteousness. I want that to be imputed into your account. Let me put that a simpler way again. He says, I want to take all your unrighteousness and forgive it. But now I want to give you my righteousness in its place. And that's the gospel in a nutshell. He takes all our unrighteousness and he gives us his righteousness. So that we're not just forgiven, but now we have been made righteousness, made righteous by his righteousness. Are you still with me? 
You see, this is what the Apostle Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. How did he do that? He took all of our sin and put it on him, made him sin for us, paid our debt. That we might become what? The righteousness of God in him. Then he gave us his righteousness. And so this is the wonderful exchange. And how glorious is that? See, this is the key of salvation that Christ has. And he's the only one who's got the key. Because he's the only one who could have paid the price, isn't he? And then there's a key of service. We read those verses in Revelation about the church in Philadelphia. The Lord opens doors and the Lord shuts doors. The Lord shuts doors that no man can open and he opens doors that no man can close. And he's talking in Revelation 3 about doors of service. He holds the key to our door of service. He is our Eliakim. The government of our lives are upon his shoulder. Aren't you glad for that? You see, when God saves you, he calls you. And he equips you. And he gifts you. And he gives you opportunities and doors of service. Sometimes we have to wait on it. Sometimes we have to be patient. And sometimes he closes a door and he opens another door. And sometimes he opens a door that's never closed. And so we have to trust him. We have to trust him how he's going to use us, whatever way. And he knows best how to do that. He knows our personalities. He knows our makeup. He knows what natural abilities we've got as well. He knows all of those things. And in the mix of all of that, he calls us and he chooses us. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. John 15, 19, I chose you out of this world. Ephesians 1, 4, we have been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. We were chosen in him and we were chosen by him to love and to serve him. It's all of his grace and it's all of his doing, isn't it? And so, whenever I became a believer, I knew instinctively, intuitively, that God wanted to do something with my life. I just knew that. I didn't know what, I didn't know when, I didn't know how, I didn't know where. But I trusted Him. And all I had to say, Lord, is, I'm available. That's all you have to say. It. 
I'm available. When, how, where, I don't know, but I'm available. And once you say, I'm available, you're putting it into his hands. He has the initiative. He has the responsibility. And then bit by bit by bit by bit, he begins to open the doors. And he gives you opportunity for ministry and his purposes. In Ephesians chapter 4, Verse 4, it says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you're called into one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each of us grace was giving according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Then it goes on down verse 11. And he gave himself, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. For the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effect of working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So in other words, God has gifts. And sometimes you are the gift. Doesn't mean you have a gift. You may all of us as gifts, but you're the gift. And he mentions fivefold ministry as a gift to the body of Christ so that the body of Christ can be growing and maturing and building up and be instructed and learn what for, so that they can be a blessing, so that they can be used by God, so that they can go out and build up the kingdom of God. That's what that's saying. And so here's body ministry. Here's building up the body and the faith in Christ. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 12, you see uh, a number of situations there regarding the building up and the body of service. Romans chapter 12 also. If you read 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 31, Romans 12, 3 to 8, in those two portions of Scripture, you'll see lots about the body of Christ and how that every part supplies, and everybody's different, and God uses everybody in different ways, their own unique ways that he can use them. And that's all part of the great body of Christ. That's the key of service that God uses for his kingdom. Then there's the key of providence. Now the word providence doesn't actually appear in the Bible. You say, well, David, why are you talking about it? Because it's everywhere in the Bible. The word Trinity doesn't appear either, by the way, but the triune God's everywhere in the Bible. What does the word providence mean? 
Well, here's a definition for you. Providence is God's gracious outworking of His purposes in Christ, which shows in His dealings with man. Let me read that again. Providence is God's gracious outworking of His purposes in Christ, which shows in His dealings with man. And this is seen through the whole sweep of Scripture. How God in His providence works everything out after the counsel of His own will for His plans and purposes to come true and for our benefit, actually. Let me give you just a couple of quick examples of that. Two widows come back from the country of Moab. Naomi and Ruth the Moabitess. Both of them were widowed. Naomi lost her husband. She also lost her two sons, one of whom Ruth was married to, and she's widowed also. They come back to their home, well, come back to Naomi's homeland uh, because they heard that the famine was over and there was now bread in Bethlehem. And so they come back and they're stony broke. They have nothing. No husbands, nothing. Widows in those days found it very, very difficult, really difficult. If you had no family member to look after you, you really were in trouble. And so they came back and cut the story short because you know it so well how that she sent little Ruth out into the barley fields to glean after the reapers would go by and there she met Boaz who just happened to be in the providence of God a very wealthy landowner who was related to Naomi. You remember how she started to match make and then how Boaz fell in love with Ruth and they got married and what happened after they got married? In time, a little boy came called Obed, their son. Then sometime later, Obed got married, and he had a son called Jesse. And sometime later after that, Jesse had lots of sons, and one of them was called David, King David. And King David was the grandson, the great-grandson, I should say, of little Ruth, the Moabitess. And that's a wonderful story of God's providence because out of the lineage of David came Christ. And you'll see the lineage there. I think it's Matthew. You'll see the lineage of Christ and you'll see Ruth's name in there. A Gentile in the lineage of Christ. That's the providence of God. God working out everything after the counsel of his own will for his purposes and for our blessing and for our benefit. She came back broke. She married a wealthy man. And in the end, she became in the very lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. <coughs> at this time of the year we're very conscious of course of the advent and Christ's coming and how that Micah prophesied that Christ would be born in Bethlehem in Judea and how true that was and you remember how that some 700 years after that prophecy was made the Roman Empire was at its zenith Caesar Augustus, uh, who was a great emperor, who prospered the empire of Rome. And how that one day or one night, we don't know when, but suddenly, maybe in his bed or out in his garden, suddenly the idea came to him, I must have a census. I must tax my people again. I must get everyone in my empire to go back to the place of their birth. Seemed a great idea, but it was a God idea. 
Because here is Mary and Joseph living in Nazareth. And God's going to have to get them 70 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Just 70 miles, 70, 75 miles. And God moves a whole empire, millions of people on the move to get two people into position to fulfill a prophecy that's 700 years old. This is the providence of God. By the way, that particular Caesar was Julius Caesar's adopted son. Gaius, Julius Caesar, Octavianus. There's a mouthful, isn't it? And the Romans reckoned he was so good that the Roman Senate awarded him the name Augustus, which means revered, which implies of some divinity. In fact, when he died, they deified him and made him a god. And once every year, everybody was to take a pinch of incense and they were to burn it and they were to publicly say that Caesar is Lord. You can see the problem that was for Christians, especially and for Jews. But God moved upon this man's heart and mind. He didn't even know what he was doing. And God moved a whole empire just to shift two people 70 miles that that little baby would be born exactly as the prophet Micah had said it would be. This is the providence of God. Now, if God can move a whole empire to move a pregnant woman 70 miles, can he not do something for us? Can he not work out our lives? Can he not? Can we not trust him to put all the pieces in place for us? Of course we can. John 1, 3 says, All things were created by him. Ephesians 3, 9. God created all things by Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 16. All things were created by him and for him. Acts 17, 28. Paul says, In him we live and we move and we have our being. See, our lives are not dictated by chance or happenstance. They're dictated by God in his providence. Trust God's providence. We don't always know what he's up to. You don't always have to know what he's up to. All you have to do is trust his providence. Trust his hand to be working behind the scenes of your life moving and shaping things. That's how you end up where you are sometimes. And you wonder, how did I get here? Why am I here? Because God was moving the furniture in your life and getting you into the position where he needs you to be. We're almost finished. And so here is our Eliakim. With the key of salvation, the key of service, the key of providence, the keys of death and hell itself. Revelation 1.18, Jesus says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of Hades and death. Those two twin terrors, the dread of all men, death and hell. And our Lord Jesus has got them in his hands. I have the keys of death in hell. He proved it in his life and he proved it in his death. He holds the key of death because he is the resurrection and the life, is he not? He holds the key of hell because he conquered Satan and all his foes. Glory to God.
And so death and hell has no terror for us because we know the one who holds the key. And it isn't the devil, let me tell you. It's not him. It's the Lord Jesus. Then finally, he holds the key of heaven. Revelation 3 and 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. No one will get into heaven without his permission. Because he holds the key. Revelation 20.15 And anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And that's a shocking verse, isn't it? It's a frightful verse. Anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Compare that with Revelation 21, 27, just for the last verse. But there shall by no means enter in anything that defiles or causes abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Because only he has got the key of heaven. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. Aren't you glad for that tonight? So whenever we talk about little baby in the manger, we've got to remember he didn't stay in the manger. Whenever we talk about Christ on the cross, we've got to remember he didn't stay on the cross. He's seated at the right hand of the Father and he's coming back and he has the keys of death and hell. He's got the key of heaven. And let me just finish by saying this. He's also got the key of the house of David. There's so many today, even evangelicals today, that says God is finished with the Jewish people. And God is the church now. And he's finished with the Jews. He hasn't finished with them. Not by a long shot. He's got the key of the house of David. And whenever he comes back, they're going to recognize him. They're going to look at him whom they pierced. Things is going to change because he holds the keys. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're glad tonight that we have put our trust completely and wholly in you. We're glad that we're held in your hands tonight. We're glad that we're not just victims of circumstances. But Lord, your providence has got us to where we are. And your providence will take us to where you want us to be. So all we've got to do is trust you. Humble ourselves before you and walk in the light that you give. And Lord, as we walk every day following your footsteps, you'll lead us into all of your purposes. So we give you thanks tonight that you hold the keys to our life, to our very existence. It's in you that we live and we move and we have our being. And so we bless you for that tonight. And upon this Christmas season that's coming up, 
We pray, Lord, that you will be ever before our eyes as King of kings and Lord of lords and that we indeed will honor you and put our faith completely in you. Thank you for all of your blessings, for all of your mercies and goodness towards us. Lead on in our lives. And Lord, let us be prospered by your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.